What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tina Powell is the CEO of C-Suite Social Media, a digital marketing and social media consultancy for the financial services industry. With over 20 years of hands-on digital marketing campaign and strategy, Tina's extensive experience has kept her on the leading edge of marketing and social media. Prior to founding C-Suite Social Media, she was a partner at Beacon Wealth Management, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Hackensack, New Jersey, later acquired by Mercer Advisors. Tina's also been a TEDx speaker and host of the In the Suite podcast, on which I was a guest. It was lovely. A show that explores contemporary themes for mid and senior women in financial services and wealth management, including career advancement, culture, life, and leadership, and professional development. Tina graduated with high honors from New York University with an MA in Graphic Communications Management and Technology. She received the PRISM Award and later taught integrated marketing and leadership in the graduate program. She also earned a BS in Business Management, magna cum laude, from Fairleigh Dickinson University and holds a Series 65 license. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Bonnie. It's so great to be here. I'm really excited. It's wonderful. I feel really very special today and honored that you would have me as a guest. So thank you. You're most welcome. Let's dive in. You gave a very powerful TEDx talk in 2017, The Women of Hoboken. Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's Hoboken. Hoboken. And you sh- I'm from Chicago, so I murder <laughs> words. Uh, sorry about that. It's all good. <laughs> and you shared some very personal struggles in that TEDx talk. I was struck by two things. One, you lack bitterness toward your father, who you had some struggles with, and your willingness to grow out of that pain. And two, I can imagine that because of the way you present, listeners can't see you, but you're a very striking person physically, in addition to projecting confidence. Most people who meet you would never imagine that you've had the childhood that you've had. So my questions are, one, how did you avoid going down the victim rabbit hole? And two, what would you tell people who assume you haven't been bumped around by life based on your beautiful appearance. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that. So it's amazing how the very things that we're challenged with in life are exactly the things that lead us down the right path. And although that my father, like everyone, like myself included, we are fundamentally flawed. We are here and we are imperfect And I loved and I worshiped my father. And he, for those of you that are listening right now who haven't watched the TEDx talk, he was battling a lot of, a lot of demons in his life, alcoholism, gambling. He and my mother were divorced from the time that I was five years old. I start out the TEDx talk with a really, really, a really hard, hard memory. And that is that I'm five years old and I hear my mother screaming downstairs in the living room and I run downstairs and I find my father on top of her, almost choking her. And she says to me, Tina, I'm okay. Get upstairs. And that's like, when that happens in your life, you are just, you're emotionally scarred forever. It scarred me forever, but in a really great way. It was definitely a battle wound that I still carry to this day, but because I have that as a lens it has made me the type of person that I am today. And I appreciate everything I have. I evaluate situations differently than other people, but, you know, fundamentally, I mean, I just loved, I loved my dad and, you know, at the time too, he had a problem that 
<laughs> wasn't fixed the way that things are fixed today. He didn't have the same kind of access that that you and I had. He didn't have the luxury of going to college. He never stepped foot in a college or university. He had a this is a man who had a high school education. He was a cook in the Korean War and he was a maitre d. People loved loved my father. He worked at the Palm restaurant in Houston, Texas, where he waited on President George Bush. <laughs> he showed me the picture and he just loved it. He loved the restaurant business. It was his life, people, food. He was just intoxicated with that every day. And I had to make a decision throughout my life. Was I going to carry around bitterness or was I going to forgive and maybe find a deeper meaning in all of it. And I vacillated through various ports. What you don't know during the during this TEDx Bonnie is like it it got worse. There were there were things I didn't include everything. We would have been there. TEDx talks, you have a limited amount of time. We would have been there for another like hour. Um, <laughs> the other thing that you don't see is that you don't see my mother's there, my brother's there, hmm. my children my children who are now 30 and 28, my daughter's 30, my son's 28, they are in the audience. Mm. And that was a story that I needed to share with them and I needed to memorialize. I wanted them to understand that where they are today, they're both, you know, privileged. They both have degrees from my daughter went to University of Delaware. My son went to Towson. They're both employed even through coronavirus. And I wanted them to just understand where our family came from. And I wanted to just kind of like open up the kimono. And yeah, it was a story that they knew, but nothing's more powerful than a, than a TEDx talk. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the way you've talked about your dad is compassionate and who hasn't made mistakes with lots of flaws. Sometimes we live decades with them and involve other people. But I don't know what bitterness would have served. But we've all met people who just can't heal in a lifetime sometimes. And so by your demonstrating that you healed and that you still love your father to your children, it feels like such a good gift for them and for you. Mm, yeah. And thank you. Thank you for saying that. This is my my feeling and my philosophy is that thoughts become things and that you are what you think and how you feel is what you attract. And yeah. so if you're going to walk around with bitterness and anger, you're going to attract those very outcomes in your life. So you have to make a decision what type of person you want to be. And if you want to be on the positive side of that, you're going to need professional counseling. If you've gone through a trauma like I have in my life, you are going to have to create an inner circle, your board of directors. You're going to have to work through it. It doesn't happen automatically. You don't drink a glass of positivity juice <laughs> in the morning, go work out on a Peloton bike and then say, yeah, I can conquer the world. No, you know, you have to realize you have to really get in touch with your your spirituality and your being at a very, very deep level. And it's really hard, hard work. And I'm glad that I did it. And again, I, I feel that a previous, it's not right to judge people. It's not. My father didn't have the type of, you know, it wasn't the same type of world. We didn't have the types of resources that we that we have today. We didn't have people showing up in our life. And you don't know what you don't know. I, he did the best job that that he could. And that's how I remember him. I miss him terribly. Mm. And he was the best dad for me. I wouldn't give it up for a million dollars. Well, you know, even after all the time in my own life with my own imperfect father, which we'll talk about just a little bit later, I've learned from you as well to, to reinforce how powerful it is to understand the human that was your father and, and embrace just, you're right, he did the best he could. And anyway, you seem like you turned out pretty well in spite of your trials. So that's also probably a testament to his good days as well. And of course, your mother's. So I want to move on to your background in business because it's you've made some really interesting pivots. 
you used to be a partner at a wealth management firm. Today, you're the owner of a successful marketing firm, C-suite social media. But how did you make that pivot? Because that's not usually a straight line. So I'll go again. (laughs) It goes to my father, Anthony (laughs) Susco, right? And I am of Italian descent, Tina Carmela. Susco is my maiden name. Everything ends in a vowel. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what happened. You know, at 2005, he he passed away in 2005 from at the age of of 74. But before all of that, I was already in marketing, and I say that I've been in marketing since I was a cheerleader. I was a, I was captain of the varsity squad in high school. That was a really big thrill and a big you know honor for me. And I feel like that's when I started to really learn about marketing because I cheerleaded for the team for our great basketball players, football and and soccer. I cheerleaded for three different three different seasons. But here's what happened. So I had that situation with my father. And again, I was a business major. And this is a, a very funny story. So here I am. I'm a business major and it's go back to like the 1990s, late 1990s. Mm-hmm. And I already have a college degree and my kids are in elementary school. And then all of a sudden, like these phones come out and these flip phones come out. And then this thing called the information superhighway <laughs> is like this internet, this information superhighway thing. I was like, Mm, interesting. What is this information superhighway thing that everybody's so, that everybody's talking about? And what I did was I started to really. I was very curious. I kind of felt like the world is the way the world is right now. That like we were just in some sort of big transformation. I couldn't put my hand on it, but I knew that this was going to be something big. So at the time, desktop computers were coming mainstream into the houses. So like everybody owned a computer. It wasn't so foreign. And I owned the Microsoft Office suite, which at the time was Microsoft Word. So being that I was involved with my kids and in their life and they were in school, what I did was I volunteered to be on the newsletter committee. And so I raised my hand and I'm like, wow, I have this really cool program. I think that we can do something with this newsletter. And so what I did was I took it and I disrupted it. I changed the format. I changed the whole look and feel of it. And it went out to over 500 people and the businesses that supported the Ordell PTA Association. And so what happened was all of a sudden the local merchants asked me who created the newsletter. Do I know how to do mailing labels? And so that's where I started to create accidentally Powell graphics. It was totally Bonnie. It was totally by accident. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I remember IC vision care giving me the black and white book, you know, notebook and that I had to basically transcribe everybody that was in there and the liquor store did it too and to create a mailing label from that. And it was when Bed and Bath and Beyond postcards were really big. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I created a business that earned me six figures. Wow. Exactly. Right. All by accident. I worked for unbelievable businesses. I worked for the lawyer, the liquor store, the eyeglass place, I even worked for a comedian and was paid to do his MySpace page. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And that's pretty cool because you were getting direct feedback that marketing works. Marketing makes a difference. Marketing matters. Yeah. And what I knew at the time was growing up in a single parent household. And again, all the trauma with my dad, I wanted to stay at home. I took seven years off of my career and I wanted to stay home and raise my kids. I didn't want anyone else. I didn't want to, I'm not making a judgment here. I had to do what was right for me. And at the time was that no child care, no person was going to actually take care of my kids. It was going to be me. I had them early in my twenties so that I would be able to afford the life. And, and luckily my husband at the time did very well to afford us the life that one of us could stay home. And I, when I started Powell Graphics, I started contributing, which was like, yes, because I went to the local college. I went to the local community college. I took their certificate programs there. I took the first online course that they had in HTML. 
uh, hypertext markup language. And then I was like, look, I live right across the street from the Hudson River in New York City. And I went to Noble Desktop Publishers. And I remember my mother and my stepfather coming over to babysit for me over a three-month period to get to classes. And when I finally maxed everything out, I went to NYU and I said, why am I taking all these certificate programs? I might as well go get my master's. Very cool. Very cool. Now, I know because you spent time doing what we do in the office that you can appreciate different skill sets, but can you gently explain why someone who's might be very good at wealth management might not be so good at marketing? Because I think this applies to all, the long list of people that you talked about that you did marketing work for, how different the, all those people were, and they all benefited from marketing. Sure, I'm going to do that. And I'm also going to kind of tether it with the last question, because again, <laughs> I can talk for a really long time and I'm guilty of not getting to the point quickly enough and being a little bit verbose. So no I problem. apologize in advance. But here's what happened. One of those clients was a wealth management firm. When I set up that accidental business called Power Graphics that, again, afforded me a life, a very nice life to stay home and then to start paying for a master's degree. What then happened was between 2000 and 2005, my father went through, he suffered a massive stroke. And when I first showed up there, again, I had, I was paying for everything. I wound up paying for my travel back and forth. I put $20,000 on a credit card over, you know, a period of time. And one of the first things that happened, Bonnie, is I, I get to the hospital, right? I get this call. You can't make this stuff up. I'm also training for a black belt in martial arts at the time. <laughs> I get home, right? There's, remember, the old-fashioned answering machine. You, like, click it, right? Yes. You push down the play, and then you hear it back. And then I'm like, what did I just hear? Like, yes, this is, you know, Houston Memorial Hospital calling. And I'm like, what is going on? And then I find out that my father has a massive stroke. I run, like I got, my aunt lives in Dallas. She drives me to Houston. I show up there and they're like, oh, your grandfather is in ICU. I said, that's not my grandfather. That's my father, you know, and I'm 30 something years old. And then what happens is when you have a stroke victim that loses their mobility and their ability to talk, aphasia is the technical word for it. And when they lose their ability to walk, you go through occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, but guess what? And this was the smack in the face that life dealt me. So we were going through all this thing, how to move my father from here to there. And then all of a sudden, everything came to a screeching halt. All the therapy in the hospital at the time, and they were kicking us out of the hospital. And I was like, what is going on? Well, he didn't fill out Medicare Part B. And I was like, Meta who? What, what are you talking about? Well, he has no insurance. He has no this. He has no Medicare Part B. I'm like, what is Medicare? What is Medicare Part B? Again, I'm in my 30s. And I'm like, this is so foreign to me, all this sure, stuff. Sure, why would you know about exactly. it? Exactly. So now a period over five years, moving him back and forth, people stealing us from the stealing in the nursing homes and being thrown into a situation with an eight-year-old to 10-year-old. And then, oh, by the way, 9-11 is going to happen on in between all of that. So I'm going to have to make a decision whether or not I'm going to get on a plane or not. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So when is when it finally ended after five years, I said to myself, wow, I might have a fancy schmancy master's degree from NYU and I might, you know, have a successful business, but I don't know a lot of stuff that I should about money and finances. And then I was left with that debt, Bonnie. And I said, I am going to make an intentional effort now. I'm going to take my skills, my marketing skills, and I am going to bring it back to the Beacon Wealths of the world. They were one of my clients when I first had Powell Graphics. I went to them and I said, look, I had an awful situation awful experience here. I want to only work in financial firms. Can you please give me a letter of recommendation? So they did. They gave me a letter of recommendation. And then guess what happened in November of 2009? Oh, by the way, what kind of market environment was it? Oh yeah, bad. Not so good. Right? So guess what happens? I get a call 
the following morning, I go to their Christmas party, give them a bottle of wine, and I bring some goodies over. And I said, thanks for writing the letter of recommendation. I get a call the following day. Their marketing person quit. Oh. Their full-time marketing person quit. And do I want to come in and talk? Wow. And I grabbed it and I was like, OMG, wild, wild. Okay. The pivot was just the vertical. The pivot was deciding that I was going to go into financial services. But you asked a really good question because at one point I did contemplate becoming an advisor, right? And, you know, how do you know whether or not that you should be an advisor, whether or not you should stay in marketing? You know, I look at you, Bonnie Sewell, and I'm like, wow, I would have loved to have like gone the Bonnie route. (laughs) But here's what I know about advisors. Here's what I know about, about you, Bonnie, is that you're an excellent communicator. The way that you communicate, whether or not that you're speaking publicly, that you're on a podcast that you're recording a video for your clients, that you're sending me an email. Advisors are great communicators. That's number one. So are marketers. Number two, we both love helping people. Financial planning is about getting a person from point A to point B. There's a goal. There's something they want to achieve. The same thing happens in marketing. Businesses have a certain goal that they might be poising themselves for M&A, They might be wanting to build the brand to attract millennials within their team. They might want to be increasing their leads, right? Number three is we probably like variety. Every day is different, right? Yep. I look at planning and and tell me, Bonnie, how much it's changed over even the last five months. It's constantly changing and very much like a freight train. So I've been in 30 years and it's never been a faster rate of change than it is right now. Exactly. So we like that variety component. It's yep. techie, right? Financial mm-hmm. planning right now, owning a, a registered investment advisory practice is very techie. You've got portfolio management, you've got rebalancing, you've got trading, you've got compliance, you've got CRMs, you've got workflows, you've got all kinds of systems in tech. Well, we have something called a tech stack, which when I started, we had paper. Yes, <laughs> right. And you probably, and then like I was dabbing in Word doing the Optimist newsletter and you were probably dabbling in Excel. Yep. Right. So here it is. So with all of those different categories, the communication, the helping people, the variety, the fact that, you know, it's very social, your clients probably feel like my clients, extended members of my family. I could hang out with them all day long, Mm -hmm. you know, right. But here's the thing. What happens in my downtime is I wouldn't grab for the barons. I like the barons, but I didn't grab for the barons. It wasn't my first thing. I grabbed my phone and I would be social. The other thing is that I always picked articles about marketing over investments. Is if I had a little bit of a free time, right? I don't want to read about Cupert's eyelets. (laughs) I want to read about podcasting over estate planning. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and that's what I said. And I said, you know what? I can still be like a quasi advisor that I can still work in the profession. But if I help an advisor reach more people and help their clients and give them a mechanism that they could then scale their businesses, it's what I call the Oprah effect. I help you. And then I'm helping all the people that you help. I'm a silent partner in that. Yes. So one thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is that people, you know, we have a lot of overlap in the way we approach things, but the things that I'm good at don't include marketing. And you've probably heard advisors say far too many times, oh, I get all my clients by referrals and fill in the blank for any other professional. I'm just using wealth management because I know it. But what the advisor really is trying to tell you is that we do need help. We just can't, we might even think we're good at marketing, but that's not usually our skill set. Here's again, one of the, the great, I guess, training, which was the best was to be a fly on the wall in a wealth management firm for eight years mm-hmm. and see what financial advisors do on a day-to-day basis. And they do great marketing. Financial advisors don't give themselves credit. 
they might not have sat down and really thought about it or systematized it or even had a marker come in and say, wow, you have a deck for a prospect deck. You've put it in your CRM system. Maybe you've created an opportunity for it. You might have either called or told somebody about it. Marketing is different from sales in that we are trying to attract a qualified buyer to the brand. We want to make sure that for the people where it's a fit, that you come into that part of the equation. And so we cannot change your client acquisition methodology. We're never going to change the formula for an advisory practice that they get their business through referrals. What marketing does is it makes you more referable. It makes you more findable. It makes you more searchable. It creates that top of mind awareness. What we're trying to do is we're trying to shorten the sales cycle, shorten the lead time and get more people to say, oh, wow, you do that? That's cool. I want to have a conversation with you. Okay. Yeah. I think it's just overlooked a lot by advisors and other professionals. And so when you made that long list of different kinds of people that you helped, that really resonated with me because I think there's almost no professional that can't benefit from marketing, professional marketing guidance. Yeah. I mean, we all need it. And here's the thing. Marketing is a lot like portfolio management. What we're dealing with is we're dealing with a different type of portfolio, but we're still dealing with a portfolio and having to make decisions on it. So your, you know, your equity is your, your website, your bond allocation might be your social, or it might be your email, your tactical actually could be your social. And so you still have to manage the portfolio. And for clients that come to us and or prospects, we don't even make them a client. In that case, we have a 25 question form that I've learned now how to formulate over three years by (laughs) taking the wrong type of client. The same way like in advisors, if somebody comes in and they're looking for a hurdle rate, all of a sudden you're going to start a marketing machine and then you are expecting that, oh, you're going to have 100 new leads or 30 new leads the next day or the next week is that, no, there's so many other things that go into it. How you answer the phone, how you're greeted, what your procedure's like, what your cost structure is like, how often you meet with clients, how you meet with clients, the succession plan or lack of thereof in your in your own business, the type of people that you hire, your credentials, all of that is marketing. And so an experienced marketer can come in with you know great ideas and somebody can just blow it if Jake is <laughs> Jake's the intern and no and it's national intern day. Thank you for all of you great, wonderful interns. So maybe I won't use the example of an intern, but let's use the example of a new employee. And that new employee wasn't what for whatever reason nobody could spend time with that person. And when they picked up the phone that day, for whatever reason, they were in a raunchy mood. And the person at the other end said, wow, this website looks great. This looks fantastic. But wow, this person that answered the phone, they were actually pretty rude to me. That blows your whole marketing budget. You might've had the best campaign and the best materials. Say goodbye. (laughs) I think we've all seen that happen. So I'm curious too, because you have your own podcast called In the Suite with Tina Powell. And it's been a breath of fresh air because you focus on women over 40 who work in financial services. And I've listened to all the episodes and I've enjoyed listening to my peers, some of who I don't really even know, which is kind of surprising because they've been working in the trenches as long or longer than I have. And you're really telling stories that our industry just doesn't tell and hasn't pursued. So I'm curious about two things. Why would you work so hard to amplify those unheard voices? And why did you choose a podcast to do it? Those are great questions, by the way. I feel so privileged to know to have the brain on my head right now. Now, you know, let's rewind. When I came to this industry, Bonnie, and I'm not going to use the time at Powell Graphics doing, you know, some side projects for a wealth Mm -hmm. management firm. I'm not even going to count those years because it wasn't until I actually became part of a firm that I really understood what was needed and what actually advisors did. When you are integrated, when you are there and the blank hits the fan because of 
you know, something happened, somebody getting sick, somebody dying, somebody all of a sudden losing a job. There are lots of different situations, health, whatnot. When you have the power of either working with a financial advisor or understanding money and understanding financial, anything financial, it gives you a new lease on life. And when I came to this industry at 43 years old, I did not have a 401k account in my name. Mm. I'm divorced. I did Mm. not have a 401k account in my name until I was 43 years old. Ah, interesting. And not untypical at all. Right. And then I come to this industry and I find the Bonnie Sewells of the world, people that I can call and that would talk to me and that I can spend an entire weekend with you somewhere and have the best, best time. And I was like, wow, how did you get here? And I, at the more and more women I would meet, I was like, wow, like who told you, who gave you an invitation to this party called like, you know, who, how did you know to come here? How did you get here? And I say to myself, Bonnie, I'm like, gosh, I wish that I would have known to come here. I wish I would have raised my hand. I wish that I would have minored in finance, majored in business, minored in finance. I wish that my first job out of college and even during college was not selling subscriptions to the New York Times and upgrades at the Playboy channel for Cablevision of New Jersey, right? I wish that I knew. And so the more and more women that I met, I was like, these are the coolest people. They are the smartest people. And the podcast was a way to amplify the stories to reach me at 20 something years old. I feel that there's a narrative that's like totally missing. And I respect for the publications and the people in this world that have been very kind to me and very good to me and very welcoming. But one of the things that I noticed was like, oh, at conferences, it's it's really great that we can have like a women's networking reception. And I was like, oh, we have a women's <laughs> networking reception. And see. they're going to pass around champagne and we're going to take selfies. And they're even going to give us some like swag so that we can take yeah, like the best Tupperware selfie picture. Yep. And then it was like, but wait, I know that woman is freaking smart. And why didn't we have an expert panel talking about something that we needed to talk about, about money, because, oh, by the way, it affects your life. And oh, by the way, I went to the school. (laughs) I took the hard version of that. I took the crash course in that, that, oh, you probably want to know what that 401k thing is and what that Medicare Part B thing is. And so I was like, where are those? Why don't we hear those stories? So I said to myself, if I have a podcast I can feature these stories, number one. Number two, they can reach people who are in college, career changers like me, and they can all of a sudden discover a whole field of opportunity that they need to know because you get smarter by definition, even if you have no idea about money, but you might kick ass as an admin. You might be like an unbelievable marketer. You come in, all this stuff can be taught. And the third reason is that I hoped, and I said to every podcast guest, I will give you my playbook for free. Yeah. How did I create my playbook? I spent money on myself. I took a course at General Assembly in New York City. I hired a podcast coach. I bought the equipment. I hired interns, computer science interns, two of them to help me with my workflows my standard operating procedures, and now it's working. You are evidence. And I always felt like I'm almost like divinely guided. And when you started, when I got that email from you, and I was like, I did the happy dance that day. (laughs) I'm so glad. Thank you. Well, you've touched on so much there. I think there's a couple of themes I just want to put a fine point on. One, because conferences are across all industries, not just financial services, but that model appears to be broken. It's the Boy Scout model, right? We're going to build it on the backs of volunteers, which is a legitimate model, but maybe not for business conferences, because what they do is they pay a few speakers and they don't pay any other speakers. So you're carrying the freight and then they charge for the conference. I mean, that's the model. And the 
model's broken because if you're going to get diverse voices, Latino, Black, Asian, and women, and just people of color, any diverse voice, different economic levels, you're going to have to pay them because they can't come out of their work to spend a day or three at your conference giving away content in the hopes that someone would somehow make it profitable for them. That's just not going to be a working model going forward. And the other thing you said I think was really important for women in particular to hear, but good for all business people, is that you spent money and money well spent. So you determined what you needed to spend on, and we all make some spending mistakes, but the point is is that you spent money on things that helped you move forward, and that is a that is something that almost must occur. We kind of live in a world right now where we expect everything to cost nothing, and that can really devalue what we end up getting. Yeah, we have to be lifelong learning is something that I've always practiced. I, I've always believed in it. It started from the time, even before I took that HTML course, I was in cooking classes. You know, lifelong learning can be a hobby too. So yes. w- w- again, I noticed that something was really, really radically changing when all of a sudden we had the ability to communicate on the fly and have a phone in our back pocket. I still look at this phone, Bonnie, and I'm like, oh my God, like seriously, it's a phone. It's a computer. I have it in my back pocket. It's not connected or tethered to anything. I don't need like coins to like work it. I look at life and at still like such, almost such a, a little kid. Like I can't even believe it. I remember like my parents <laughs> saying like, you know, well, we had black and white TV, like color TV for them was a big thing. The microwave was a big thing. And we have the cell phone, like, holy mackerel. It is it's an exciting time to be alive, no doubt. In spite of all the bad news, there's so many cool things going on at any given time. But I want to get to, you know, as a woman in business, maybe you've been told how you're supposed to, quote, be in terms of presentation. And I think everyone reveals themselves eventually, whether they mean to or not. So pretending to be someone you're not only delays what people will eventually learn about you. But when you speak, Tina, I hear someone who says what they mean and means what they say, which is a relief to me as a woman for navigational purposes. I don't have to wonder what you're thinking about. I don't have to wonder if you're genuine. So what would you tell women entering financial services industry or any industry as a marketer you know, how you're received, how do you present yourself? How do you think about that? So here's the thing. It's an evolving, you're never done. It's a constant study to learn how to present and communicate and be an effective communicator. I'm still in that course. So thank you very much for your generous words. However, I have also too put action and money towards it. So I belonged to Toastmasters. So Toastmasters is a group that you refine your public speaking and your leadership capabilities. And there's a chapter, it's internationally. So I went through the, I'm a Toastmaster competent communicator and a competent leader. And so for Monday night over the course of seven years, Every two hours, I'd go to the Hawthorne Congressional Church from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, no matter if there was snow on the ground or whatnot. And I refined the art of my own presentation, and I was open to critique and constructive feedback. And so that's something I would absolutely recommend I second that recommendation. I'm a Toastmaster as well, and I, it's a gentle environment to get better. I, I think that's a great suggestion. For sure. The other thing is that I don't want to poo-poo conferences because they have been one of the best places actually to also to refine your, your speaking. So there's the, how many sessions, Bonnie, have you been that there's a mic during the session, there's maybe like two or even three of them, and you have the ability to ask a question. You're not on the panel, right? You're right. in the yes, audience. lots of those. Right. Yes. For every woman listening... I want you to get up out of your seat and I want you to take that mic. That's a great suggestion. Learn to ask questions. It could be the most redundant question. It could be a, you you want to try not to ask a stupid question, but I've been guilty of that, right? (laughs) No, there are no dumb questions. Exactly. Do not lose the opportunity. The conference organizer is giving you the mic. Take the mic. 
So it's a great uh, way to look at it. Yeah. So no matter what situation that you're in, you're in a board meeting, you're in a team meeting, you start to see all the situations where somebody can be like, Hey, can I have a, ask a question, even just you just answering and raising your hand. So that's what I would say. Graduate school too, obviously helped a lot. I went to graduate school 20 years after grad, after undergrad. So it was really great. Everything was like team presentations. NYU is like very like, again, the team environment was something we did. And we practically had to present with in every single class I took. And one of them was a buying and selling class. Hmm. Okay. And we literally, I remember my instructor, right? Professor Tevis. And he literally makes the, the ding, ding, ding sound on the elevator. And so we have to practice our elevator pitch. <laughs> and, you know, so I would say like these fundamentals, the fundamentals in finance work, the fundamentals in communication work, do not be lazy about your communications, be a student of them. That's great advice. And and so here's another place where in your marketing expertise, I know you're going to set me straight on this because you clearly think social media is a necessary place to be. I get worked up on social media and tend to think of it as a social sewer because of the some of the activity on there. It's sometimes been such a force for nonsense. But how should we think and act in social media? And how should we think about it for our businesses is my real question. Good. I really love this question. It's one of my (laughs) favorites. Okay. So let's first, let's take the word social media and then let me just, you know, imagine I'm going to divide a line between them. So let's treat each word separate first. And so the social component of social media is just people sharing. It's just, you can't be social unless that there are more than one person, right? Do we agree with that? Yes. Okay. Right. The media part about it And you can see, I I taught at NYU for two and a half years, right? And I loved it, by the way, taught in the graduate program. So it's always great to kind of go back to a fundamental body of knowledge and going back to the definition. Media can be in four different formats. There's text, there's pictures, there's video, and there's sound. Yes, you know, we can look at the lens of that through like We could get really fancy like ticker symbols like JPEG and PMG Mm -hmm. and GIF and all of that, right? So those are the forms of media. So if you take social, lots of people together, and you take media, like all these different files, but put it as like, let's think of these files as useful pieces of information and you combine them, that is social media. There are people in social media who are actually sharing good knowledge but of course. it's right, but it's not unlike the real world where even a publication, there's all types of newspapers, some are better than others. So social media is like there's a lot of lot of stuff. Does a person have to scour and sift and curate? Yes, you have to curate your channels and you've got to curate your people. You don't pay attention to everything. You decide to be a curator in social media and say, I'm going to pay attention to this people. But here's why you need it as a brand. And we proved this with wealth management, actually, because when I was like, yes, we need a Twitter we need a Twitter handle. We, we should be on Twitter. And I will never forget dead silence, dead silence. What are we doing on Twitter? Our, our clients are on Twitter. And it was like, exactly. I created, so I created Twitternomics. It was the first time that I did a presentation for TD Ameritrade Institutional. I'll never forget it. You can still actually access Twitternomics. Okay, cool. Right? Okay. But here's what it is. People buy from people. The fundamental mechanisms of our society haven't changed. We're still like little, like we're still peddlers in a village and people buy from people they know, like, and trust. If you don't have any presence on social media and I can't see you and I can't find you and I can't do the due diligence, guess what? I don't trust you and I don't want to do business with you. Right. And that's why a business has to be on there. You as a brand have to be on there. Another reason that businesses have to be on social media is the millennial, is you need to solve for your talent acquisition challenges. People are the number one asset in a wealth management firm. I don't care how credentialed that person is. That's true. Okay, right? 
How are you going to attract the next generation of talent? Forget about the next generation of wealth transfer that everybody's talking about. Good luck getting those dollars from G2 and G3 with no social media presence. Good luck with that. Well, and by G2 and G3, what do you mean? So I mean the second generation and the third generation. Okay. That's what I mean because these are the platforms and what's going to happen is that there's cognitive bias, right? So they're not even on social media. That's like the equivalent of what happened in the late 1990s and the 2000s if you didn't have a website. I was begging business owners, please, you need to have a website. I really, Tina, I have a Yellow Pages ad. Tina, we've got great clientele. Tina, we've got an email list. And so I've been saying the same thing. I've been shouting from the rooftops. (laughs) We need social media done correctly, though. There's a way to do it. There's an art to communication. There's an art to putting your messages out there. So does that <laughs> does that it does answer my question? Is- and I, well, no, I'm I'm glad to see you get so energized because to me, as a non-marketing professional and someone who wants to be in social media, but I have to limit my access to it because I can get sucked in. I know that that's part of its intention. I know the algorithms work hard to get you involved, but I'd like to. What I'm trying to understand, and you've helped me understand it, is that obviously it has to be part of the business, but I'd like it to work for me. And and me not to work, you know, the wrong way in it. So here's another way that it works for you is that Sally, that is a, let's call her Cindy. So Cindy is a client of American Capital Planning mm-hmm. and she's one of your best clients. And then her friend, Joanne has just been, unfortunately, Joanne just lost her husband Okay, and Joanne has no idea what to do with money. What happens is Cindy says, you really need to meet Bonnie. And I'm going to send you this little video about her that she posted on her Facebook. And Joanne is already in Facebook groups because Joanne's retired and she belongs to a poetry group. And she's Mm -hmm. also a docent at the Neighborhood Museum. So she's already on social media. That's where she's checking her grandchildren's pictures. It's where she's checking in with her teen. Because remember, Joanne lives alone. Joanne lives alone and she doesn't have anybody there with her now, right? So if Cindy is trying to refer Bonnie to Joanne, it's much easier now if there's something on social media that she can share. So Tina, that is the best explanation I've heard for how to use and why to use social media. And actually, poor Joanne, who I don't know, of course, because she's a fictional character you just made up, but the way you described her as a docent is that's our town. That's ex- We have a lot of Joannes, and uh, so that's extremely helpful. So Joanne exists in real life, and she's my mother, and my mother oh. was widowed. My mother was widowed at 12 years ago. Luckily, my mother modeled awesome behavior for me. And so while my father was during, you know, his thing, being a bad boy, my mother was the complete opposite. She earned a bachelor, uh, an associate's, then a bachelor's degree. She had her own bookkeeping business and she worked for a tax accountant for 13 years. Wow. Okay. And then, so when, when it came time that my mother was widowed, luckily financially, she wasn't prepared and it doesn't help that your daughter works for a wealth management firm and your sister's an estate attorney. So, but my mother has interests, right? My mother is a docent at the Grounds for Sculpture in Hamilton. She belongs to a poetry group. She takes screenwriting classes. And again, you know, Facebook is her go-to. And that's where she connects with her eight brothers, uh, seven, well, eight brothers, there's a black sheep. There's always a black sheep. Um, <laughs> different podcast. (laughs) Right, exactly. And especially during coronavirus, when, oh, by the way, all of a sudden this virus, this pandemic's going to hit you. And now you've got to be inside your building and in a quarantine for three months. Yeah, very tough. So that's, well, thank you for sharing your mom's story too. That makes it much better, even even more so. So my last thing that I want to ask you about, it's so interesting to hear you talk and your dad's story about a stroke could have been my mom's story. I lost her when I was 
30. She was 57 when she had the stroke, 59 when she passed, aphasia on the left side. Um, when I got off the elevator of the center who was taking care of her, I heard her screams first. It was horrible. I had small children. Of course, in my many 14 moves, uh, that was one of them. We were moving from Chicago to Philly, and she lived in North Carolina. There's a funny story I'll share sometime about my sister and I moving her to a center closer to me and feeding her through a tube. We had all kinds of crazy thoughts at the time, but but we we got her there. And so just really the how small the world is and how much of the same real estate people have traveled. And so a fundamental belief that we hold on the podcast and one of our whys for doing this is that sharing our real stories, we learn from each other, we get to know each other, and we bridge that distance between each other. Because as women, we hold our stories close, unless we're perhaps a different culture. But I know, speaking for many white women that I have known and cared about, we keep our stories close so we don't share them. And that builds up all kinds of walls. So what story can you share with our listeners? And know you've shared so many, so maybe it's some of the same ones, but about how you know for sure that this is not a dress rehearsal. Great. And I love the question. Thank you. Certainly with the pandemic and with coronavirus that we all, all of a sudden were in a a crash course about life. And then a second wave kind of hit us. Yeah. the, The first wave, which is the pandemic. The second is the economic. And the third was the racial divide. And so at the time when the, we had the killing of George Floyd, I had yet to interview on the podcast, a woman of color. And so how you know that this is no dress rehearsal is that you have to show up in times that matter and that it's going to be very, very difficult. And you are going to have to ask new things about yourself and you're going to have to push yourself in new directions And so when that moment hit, I said to myself, number one, I want to get more women of color on the podcast. How do I do that? Well, I did what was kind of easy, right? I went through people. I saw that you were speaking at Tiburon and I was like, well, you know, let me reach out to Bonnie. I was already going to Tiburon. It seemed like Mm -hmm. really easy, right? So I made an intentional effort that I was going to go out. I was going to meet new people And that's what I did. And then all of a sudden, I started to meet new people. I started to listen to books. There's a book out there from Minda Hearts called The Memo. I started to do my own kind of diversity and inclusion effort. I started even taking on my Peloton at the gym, (laughs) taking, uh, yeah, I wish it was in my house, taking (laughs) classes with Black female instructors. And there's one out of like, you know, 20. And then I I said to myself, we're a team of four people, and then I have some other people that I work with on a per-project basis, but we have a team of four. And I gave them, I built a survey, and I said, don't sugarcoat it. How do you think that we as a company are doing as it relates to diversity inclusion? Now, mind you, my team is two white women, two women of color. Mm -hmm. And... I got an okay grade, Mm -hmm. right? And so I said, exactly. So I bought them the book. We had a whole team meeting about diversity inclusion. I said, pick a time next week where you get a paid day off to actually read the book. Go to a library, go to a park. I know that they like to hike. They're millennials, you know. Yeah. And and I started to also, too, build poll questions in Zoom. So I even took our technology to a new level. I built in a survey. I had them react. I did different things on Zoom. And then I said, one day, let's look at the the inclusivity statements of like really super big companies. And I put them in a Zoom meeting room. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's really cool. You put people in a room. You're like, okay, here's something I want you to do now. You know, come back to me, fetch out an answer and come back to me with with something. And they came back to me with a big, huge brand, right? And I don't mean to throw them under the bus. Maybe I shouldn't, but, you know, they compared Coca-Cola's diversity inclusion statement to like another company. And they said, well, here's some of the things we like and here's some of the things we don't like. And I said, great. Thank you very much for the power of that exercise. So now C-Suite Social Media, we're redoing our website. We're creating an inclusivity statement. We've created in our Google Drive a source for resources. I have everybody contribute. 
I've built it into my base camp poll. You know, how are you feeling? How are things going? What more could we be doing? And, and so I think like, that's how, you know, it's no dress rehearsal when the hard stuff comes up and it is hard. You have to meet it head on. It's the only way to go. Yeah, I love that. I think it's extremely true. I'm glad that you're promoting action. I think that's a leadership quality, one that's in short supply. So I really appreciate that too. And certainly you're you're really correct in describing the three waves. So the COVID pathogen and then economic, which is still unfolding, and the diversity issue, which will unfold for many, many years because it will take so much time to unwind the damage and to rearrange the deck chairs so that everybody actually gets part of the pie. Speaking for myself, I I joined a race workshop for the purpose of opening up my own eyes and heart. 11% of our clients are African-American. I called them to understand, because we've talked about many things over the years and never talked about race. It was certainly time to do that. They were very generous in sharing their stories, horrible stories, and these are wealthy people. I always made a jump that if you were wealthy enough, you were protected from some of these bad experiences, but that isn't true when you're a person of color. So I really appreciate you bringing that into the conversation. And I I think that in trying to get people to understand that time is fleeting, it's one of those things we we think about impactfully in some period of time and, and we let go of again. Yeah. And I was reminded, I spoke at an event at Peachtree Capital and they had a guest and his name was Don Dapani. And one of the great things that happens is when you get to speak at conferences, you actually get to go to the conference and there's other speakers there. <laughs> so at Petrie's conference, Don Dapani was there and he has a great YouTube video. And he talked about the fact that time was finite. And interestingly enough, Bonnie, I just got his email today and because I'm on his mailing list and I follow him mm-hmm. naturally on Instagram and Twitter <laughs> alongside. <laughs> but I always remember that. He's like, you know what? If you look at time as finite, you'll make different decisions about your life. Yes. And that stuck with me. And I was like, thank you, God, so much for, you know, for sending me here and giving me the opportunity. Shout out to Dave Miller, the CEO of Peachtree, who gave me that opportunity to, to speak that day. And then it turned out that I met Don Dapani even before he spoke in the elevator. And I was like, oh, I was like, you're Don Dapani. And, and then <laughs> so, so one of the things that Don Dapani practices is he goes wherever he's speaking, he goes to find the gardens of wherever he's speaking. So he said that he's like, well, what are you doing? I was like, I, I was like, I couldn't even talk, right? And, and aside from that, <laughs> he's just like he's really a beautiful person and eloquent. Oh my God. One of the best communicators I've ever seen on, on stage. And so he said, well, I, if you're not doing anything, I'd love for you to come to the garden with me now. And this was like, just, you know, we we're just friends. Like he's married and has kids, of course, and like, of you course. know, exactly. And so only just, as a woman would you have to describe that, right. but I understand. <laughs> okay. I have to clear that up right here yeah, right now. Okay. I understand. Exactly. And he's a monk, right? So he's, he's spent <laughs> years and years being a monk. And so I said, yes, you know, and that was one of the reasons I said yes, because, you know, I felt very safe. I was like, wow, it's Don Dapani. And we walked around in the gardens that day in Atlanta. And I was like, wow, what an incredible lesson here. I was like pinching myself, like, am I really here right now with Don Dapani? And I watched some of his videos, but then when I saw him on stage, so time is finite, time is finite, time is finite. It is. And honestly, if you send that link to us, to some of his stuff, we'll be happy to include it in the show notes. So I really, really appreciate your participation today, Tina. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations. I'm so excited. You're doing such incredible work in the world and from especially a social media perspective, this now becomes something that you can easily share. And I would say, you know, for women listening right now, people like Bonnie in the world, there's some great, great people doing such fantastic work and take advantage of the fact that, you know, you've now invited them into your universe. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor. Thank you, Tina, for your time, insights, and wisdom. We wish you continued happiness and success. I have no doubt you'll find it. And if you'd like to learn more about Tina and her company, C-Suite Social Media, visit her website at c-suite.com 
socialmedia.com. Thanks again, Tina. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.